Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wowherever you get your podcasts. The Bowery Boys, episode 158, The Hotel Teresa, The Waldorf of Harlem. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom is not here for this episode, so it'll just be me. And it's totally his loss because this is the first episode in our brand new recording studio, which you can probably tell because there is a slight echo, echo, echo behind my voice here. So I don't have the room all soundproofed yet, but I swear by the next episode, I promise you it'll be properly set up. So the honoree of this episode, this is a podcast that's a tribute to a building that turns 100 years old this year, and a building that I I think goes rather unappreciated in the annals of New York City history. The Hotel Teresa, which was constructed in 1913 in the neighborhood of Harlem, was a very lovely hotel when it was constructed, but then rather unexpectedly became, at least in my opinion, one of the most glamorous places in New York City in the 1940s and 1950s. This was one of Harlem's social centers in the decades following the Harlem Renaissance, a hotel in the midst of one of the most exciting neighborhoods who, for some of its history, kept out most of its neighbors due to the color of their skin. When the doors were finally opened to African Americans in 1940, iconic musicians, movie stars, politicians, activists, and athletes flocked here, turning this 300-room hotel into a nightly spectacle and transforming this intersection of Harlem, 125th Street and 7th Avenue, close to the Apollo Theater, to the ballrooms and nightclubs of Harlem, turned it into a focal point of American black culture. This is an episode full of bold names, famous folk, including the man who's about to serenade us into the show. Let me put on my jazz voice. I was a jazz DJ in college, so I have a jazz voice. As I introduce one of the frequent guests of the Hotel Teresa, Duke Ellington and his orchestra. Thank you. 
glorious Hotel Teresa is located at the intersection of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard, or if we're being technical here, 125th Street and 7th Avenue. The building is 15 blocks north of Central Park, a short walk from St. John the Divine, and exactly half a block from the Apollo Theater. 125th Street here is the business district of Harlem. Today, the hotel, former hotel, is the Teresa Towers, an office building catty-cornered to another rather odd building, the Adam Clayton Powell Jr. State Office Building, a brutalist structure completed in 1973 that's, well, it's interesting looking. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was the first African-American congressman from New York and represented Harlem for over 25 years. In front of the state office here is this spectacular statue of Powell. It's one of my favorite statues in New York. His coat is blowing behind him like a cape, like he was some kind of superhero. And in fact, for many people, he was. The Teresa opened in 1913. But I'm going to begin this story just a few decades further back from there. Harlem would become one of the great centers of American culture, a neighborhood identified with African-American arts and politics, But during the early part of the 19th century, it was just sparsely developed with manor houses for the wealthy. Its topography little changed since it was first developed as a village by the Dutch in the 1600s and called Harlem, Harlem with two A's, H-A-A-R-L-E-M, after a medieval-era city in the Netherlands. The village of Harlem was carved into blocks by the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, and travel to this little area, which was quite distant from the city down south, of course, well, it improved with the development in 1831 of the New York and Harlem Railroad. But it wasn't really until the construction of the elevated trains in the 1880s that people really started moving up to this area. Speculators built row houses and apartments which attracted poor and middle-class Polish and Russian Jewish families. Italians moved here too, moved east of here actually, developing the first proper Little Italy far before the touristy area downtown would be given that particular nickname. But back at this corner, the southwest corner of 125th and 7th, people anticipated the arrival of money with theaters and department stores being developed up and down the street. In 1888, a six-story brick hotel called the Hotel Winthrop was built at this spot. Now, the only story of interest that I was able to personally dig up about the Winthrop was in 1894, when a prominent real estate broker, who was staying here one night, well, he took a little sleepwalk down the hallway one night and right out a fifth-story window. So that's the Winthrop. With the opening of the New York subway in 1904, more people would arrive in making Harlem their home and work, still mostly white, Jewish, Italian families at this time, but so many that the Winthrop was quickly deemed as inadequate. So in stepped a man named Gustavus Seidenberg. Gustavus, with his brothers, was a successful manufacturer of men's collars and cuffs and lace accessories for women, gloves and veils. With this collars and lace fortune in 1912, Gustavus decided to tear down the Winthrop and build something a little bit more extraordinary, something more downtownish, if you will. 1912 was a banner year for New York City architecture because just downtown, the Woolworth Building was going up, the tallest building of its day. Both the Woolworth and the Hotel Teresa here would open the following year, both featuring pale, sophisticated terracotta in its design, both completely dominating the landscape around them. The Teresa was built by the firm of George and Edward Bloom, best known for their stylish Upper East Side apartment buildings. In fact, the Hotel Teresa would be a 300-room 
apartment hotel. Similar to the other hotels of the day, like the Chelsea and the Netherlands, the Plaza, hotels that offered both short and long-term accommodations. An ad in the New York Tribune called it, quote, a refined family and transient hotel with unexcelled cuisine, perfect service, breakfast 50 cents, lunch 60 cents, and dinner a dollar. The Hotel Teresa opened in the fall of 1913. But who is this mysterious Teresa? Well, Mr. Seidenberg had not one, but two wives named Teresa. Teresa I died in 1910, and the following year he married Teresa II. It's a convenient name for a hotel, then, because then nobody gets jealous. The Teresa was called high class and, quote, a noteworthy improvement to the neighborhood, quote, by the New York Times. What may not have been immediately evident to the Times, or to Seidenberg for that matter, was the incredible change in Harlem life that was just about to occur. In southern United States, the enforcement of Jim Crow laws and the cruel, insulting treatment of African Americans by whites forced thousands to move from the southern states into the Midwest, out to California, and mostly to the Northeast. The Great Migration, as it's called today, changed the face of major American cities as black families settled into affordable neighborhoods in urban areas. Harlem became attractive due to its cheap housing outside the denser neighborhoods of lower Manhattan, and soon the neighborhood became a nucleus for black New York life. You know, imagine what a jolt it must have been to have thousands of new residents in one place with shared cultural experiences, allowing them to thrive and develop an alternative to a hostile mainstream, and of course, right around the time of the Jazz Age. The writers, artists, and cultural icons of the Harlem Renaissance the political ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey, the, the churches that moved uptown, the nightclubs and the speakeasies that thrived at night. Harlem became New York's largest black neighborhood, but it easily became a cultural force itself that was known all over the United States, all over the world. By 1930, almost 70% of the population of Harlem identified as black. However, many of the businesses in Harlem and those on 125th Street here, well, most were still white-owned. While the spending power of African Americans certainly eased policies in some places, many were steadfastly segregated, and that included the Hotel Teresa, all the way up to 1940. There's a very ugly reality about New York City in the early and mid-20th century. There was this undercurrent of segregation that kept people removed, cut off from a great many of New York's finest restaurants, theaters, and hotels. These were standards of conduct that were openly derided when they occurred in the South, of course, but were no stranger on the very streets of a city that would later pride itself in its diversity today. The finest hotels, including the Waldorf Astoria and nightclubs like the Store Club, had restrictive segregation policies, spoken or unspoken, well into the 1950s, even as they would hire, say, black musicians to entertain their white patrons. Many places were governed by this network of unspoken social custom. In fact, the legendary Cafe Society in Greenwich Village, a club which often featured the talents of a young Billie Holiday, made headlines for being one of the first integrated clubs in 1938. Then 10 years later, of course, Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Baseball's color barrier as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So this is the world that we're dealing with here in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Simply put, the Hotel Teresa was in the wrong place to be upholding such a ludicrous practice. Management put up a fight, 
1937, the heirs of Gustav Seidenberg were sued by two African-American guests who had been denied rooms. It didn't make any sense, really. By this time, many white-owned businesses had moved out of Harlem, and there was a real demand for a high-end accommodation for black guests at this point. Rich African-American businessmen and women, tourists, celebrities, musicians, often whole orchestras of musicians, were outright rejected, or at least certainly not welcomed, by downtown hotels. Something had to give, and fortunately, it was management. They relented, dropped their segregationist policies, and even hired a black manager to operate the hotel. Little by little, black celebrities, shunned by other hotels, made the Teresa their home, for sometimes months at a time, creating the atmosphere of a true place to be in the city. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? more confident, capable surgeons, and even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Soon, others who could have stayed elsewhere instead chose the Teresa. It quickly became known as the Waldorf of Harlem, although I would personally say it sounds a little bit more fascinating than the Waldorf might have been at the same period of time. After all, the Teresa had to contain a diverse group of people. Showgirls, wealthy tourists, actors, athletes, socialites, politicians, even gangsters. In just 300 rooms. The hotel was booked for months in advance for most of the 1940s. Holding an amplifier to all of this was the thriving black press of Harlem in the 1940s, and in particular, the Pittsburgh Courier's gossip columnist, Billy Rowe, a sort of black Walter Winchell of his day. Rowe reported almost daily about the Teresa from his offices literally across the street from the hotel. 
Ebony Magazine called the hotel the quote social headquarters of Negro America, and Ebony should know, for John Harold Johnson, the founder of both Ebony and Jet magazines, developed these publications while a guest at the Teresa. So why don't we just take a little tour here, serenaded by a star who frequently played at the Hotel Teresa, the one and only Una Mae Carlyle. Girls, I have a secret. If you listen, I will tell. It's so romantic. Met a charming gentleman and honest, he's so swell. I'm almost frantic. Beautiful eyes. He had such beautiful eyes. He told such beautiful lies. He had me hypnotized, mesmerized, beautiful eyes. He never seemed to get wise. He called me such pretty things. Then he pawned all my rings. But he had such the corner of 7th Avenue and 125th Street was a bustle of energy. Guests coming and going from the Apollo or the Savoy, cabs lined up day and night under that divine emerald marquee. What probably caught your eye first was the bar at street level. At least the hotel management hoped that you'd catch the bar. It's an urban legend that the Teresa hired a black bartender named Big Steve and had him prominently serve drinks near the window to let people know things had changed around here. The Teresa's 51-foot J-shaped bar would be packed every night with a handful of celebrities and, of course, a room full of others who wanted to get a little close to a celebrity. According to Billy Rowe, quote, The bar was so crowded, a man could lose his pants and walk the length of the place without anybody noticing. Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, the dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson, and a host of hard-bitten journalists frequented the bar. But if drinking wasn't your thing, walk over to the Teresa Coffee Shop, where you might see boxer Joe Lewis enjoying his mushroom omelet. Joe was one of the most famous people in America in the 1940s, and he lived at the Teresa during some of his most famous bouts at Yankee Stadium and the Polo Grounds. After matches, whether he won or lost, thousands would flock outside the Teresa, waiting to get a glimpse of the athlete. On the evening of June 22, 1938, Joe Lewis defeated the German boxer Max Schmeling, a favorite of Adolf Hitler, and Lewis's victory party was held here on the second floor of the Teresa Hotel. Now, finally getting to the lobby, you can really witness the clash of permanent versus transient residents here. Wealthy, well-dressed tourists following bellboys to the elevator, passing socialites, a cluster of people attending to a big star, say, Eddie Rochester Anderson from The Jack Benny Show, and maybe some less desirable characters, gamblers, or even, in the later years, prostitutes. In the 1950s, you might go up to the desk and speak to a young clerk named Charlie Wrangell, who would later be elected to the House of Representatives. And if you were really lucky, you might see the switchboard operator at her duties behind the front desk, a classy lady named Miss Maddie Jean, written about by journalists and known for her distinctively velvet voice. Now, speaking of class, you might then head up to the mezzanine level, festooned with couches and cocktail tables, where you're surrounded by several shops and offices, including the exclusive boutique of Etienne Johnson, where on that particular day she might be outfitting her clients 
Ella Fitzgerald, or Lena Horne. The club room was on this floor, as was the Orchid Dining Room, an upscale restaurant that hosted literary parties like the one for Richard Wright for the release of his novel Native Son. Down the hall, you'll find the recording studios to the radio stations WWRL and WLIB, stations that are still with us today, actually. On WLIB's debut broadcast at the Teresa on April 29th, 1950, you would have heard live performances by Sarah Vaughan and Billy Eckstein. In 1949, you could head upstairs to the Skyline Ballroom with its beautiful vista of Manhattan and New Jersey. But it wasn't just for anyone. The manager of the Therese at the time, Bill Brown, made sure it was one of Harlem's most upscale destinations. His son, Ron Brown, later said, If you had a wedding in the Skyline Ballroom, you had to be top shelf, unquote. Little Ron here, by the way, who grew up here at the Teresa Hotel, would grow up to become Bill Clinton's Secretary of Commerce in the 1990s. Some of the hottest parties were, of course, going on in the rooms themselves, such as the penthouse suite soirees of songstress Dinah Washington. If those were too crazy for you, and most likely they were... The manager, Bill Brown here, had an apartment in the penthouse as well, where they had lovely gatherings that attracted people like Paul Robeson and Langston Hughes. In some of the rooms below here, however, something a little bit more illegal was going on, namely a room set up for gambling with five or six tables, the manager himself getting in on a cut. Not surprisingly, gangsters themselves showed up at the Teresa, the most prominent being Bumpy Johnson, an aficionado of the numbers racket, installed by Lucky Luciano as the most powerful gangster in Harlem. By the 1950s, with the rise of the civil rights movement, many political activities were centered at the Teresa, most notably A. Philip Randolph's March on Washington movement, which was a 1940s precursor to the event, which eventually took place in Washington in 1963. By this time, the Teresa became a quick stop for presidential candidates looking to make outreach to the African-American vote, and not a stop without consequence. Days before he was elected president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower had dinner here with local black leaders. A photograph of he and Mamie enjoying their meal circulated in the South as a scare tactic. Quote, the general has said that he would be glad to name a Negro to his cabinet. The caption read ominously. Certainly, the most famous visitor to the Hotel Teresa was none other than Fidel Castro in 1960, the new prime minister of communist Cuba, a visitor shunned by some and embraced by others. Thousands of people gathered in the streets outside when he arrived at the Teresa. Langston Hughes, Allen Ginsberg, and Malcolm X met Castro here in his room, as did other guests of the United Nations, most notably Nikita Khrushchev, so Khrushchev and Castro, here at the Teresa, and in the middle of the Cold War, no less. The Teresa was an immensely popular and beloved hotel, but it was never really considered a nice hotel. Its fixtures needed replaced, its mirrors were cracked, the wallpaper and the carpet was stained with years of celebration and years of leaks. The triumphs of the civil rights movement actually quickened the decline of the Teresa, as hotels and restaurants downtown did away with their race-based policies. The biggest stars of Harlem headed back downtown to the fancier, more well-to-do hotels. Left behind was a neighborhood that was slowly deteriorating and a hotel past its prime. In 1966, the final guests left the Teresa, and the famed hotel was turned into an office building called the Teresa Towers. While the amazing facade of the building is intact, 
Its interiors were completely and unspectacularly renovated. The bar, the diner, the radio stations, the boutiques, all those former spaces have since been turned into offices or storefront retail. In July of 1993, the Landmark Preservation Commission bestowed landmark status to four significant buildings in Harlem. Three of them were churches, including the Abyssinian Baptist Church on 138th Street, where the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Jr. preached before he entered politics. The Abyssinian, two other churches, and one former hotel, the Hotel Teresa. So I headed up to the Teresa again today over lunch to take a gander at this former hotspot. It's so wonderful to go back to this building that you've seen several times, but then to just do all this research and then see it in a completely new light. So you'll have to do that yourself. There's a Mac Cosmetics and a shoe store on the ground floor and a White Castle in the spot where Louis Armstrong once had a cocktail. So, I mean, for research, I had a couple White Castle sliders and some crinkle fries, you know, to get in the mood. But unless you work in one of the offices within the Teresa Towers, there's no way they're going to let you in to, like, take a tour. Now, the Toro College of Pharmacy is located in on one of the floors. I wonder if you could just be a student for a couple days, just get a quick look inside and then drop out. But if you want to visit in your mind, I think the best way to do it is to pick up this charming book by the author Sandra Catherine Wilson called Meet Me at the Teresa. It is loaded with conversations of people who had visited or even lived at the Teresa. What's so great about this book is it has all of these quotes that often go on just a little too long, if you know what I mean, and that's where all the good stuff is. It's a breeze of a book, so pick that up. So that is my tale of the Hotel Teresa. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have several pictures of the hotel itself and some of the most notable guests. As you know, we have a Facebook page, so please visit it and, and like us there and join the community and discussion on that page at Bowery Boys and also on Twitter at Bowery Boys. For those of you who have donated so far, we have a little donate button on our website. I just want to say thank you to all of you. Trust me. All of that money is going into this room, actually, to put up some soundproofing and to do other things that we really need to do and upgrading some equipment. Our last mixing board died during the Ghost podcast. So literally, it doesn't even work anymore. I'm I'm working on a a miniature model, but um, only a better one for the two of us. So, but thank you for those donations. That's totally nice and wonderful. We totally, we absolutely appreciate it. So thank you very much for listening. Tom will be back for our holiday show in December. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bradison, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.